You are now listening to The Model Health Show with Sean Stevenson. For more, visit themodelhealthshow.com. Welcome to The Model Health Show. This is fitness and nutrition expert, Sean Stevenson, and I'm so grateful for you tuning in with me today. On this episode, we're gonna be having some straight talk about sex. Now, this is definitely for mature ears. Now, if you're questioning your maturity, then you probably shouldn't listen to this one. But truly, this is information that all of us should be equipped with because we're walking around here in these really incredible bodies, but not really understanding how they work. And also in relationship to our partners and sex and what's going on there. It's just so much of our education is coming from sources that are often very misconstrued, even warped, or even fear-based. And so I think this conversation is going to be incredibly enlightening. And again, this is straight talk about sex, and sexual health, and so much more. Now, speaking of sex, sex can happen in a myriad of different places, obviously. All right. From cars to the beach to tree houses. I don't know. Sex is going to go down a plethora of different places. Humans are known to do it in a lot of different places. Now, obviously, where it goes down just conventionally in the conventional perspective is in the bed, right? The B-E-D, making your bed rock, right? Shout out to the Flintstones. But in truth, our bed should be a place of peace and comfort and safety. And there's two primary things that go down on that mattress, sleep and sex. Now, for both of these, what if we can add in more sensuality? What if we can add in more pleasure? What if we can add in more relaxation? Well, the sheets that you are laying on, that you're sleeping on, and that you're doing it on matters. Marvin Gaye talked about this between the sheets. All right, we're going to expand this out and talk about the sleep quality that we're getting on our sheets. A randomized controlled trial recently conducted found that mental alertness during the next day improved upwards of 25% after sleeping on Etitude's organic bamboo lyocell sheets. 94% of people preferred sleeping on these sheets after getting the opportunity to slip into them. These sheets are free from harmful chemicals, irritants, allergens, and they're hypoallergenic. And they're gentle on sensitive skin. So folks that experience issues trying to sleep because of their skin, like psoriasis and eczema and dermatitis, have found relief by sleeping in attitude sheets. They're antimicrobial, self-deodorizing, and they inhibit bacterial growth, helping to create a truly healthy sleep environment. They're breathable, moisture-wicking, and thermoregulating. I've been sleeping on attitude sheets for years, and I just truly do not want to sleep on anything else. Don't make me. Head over there, check them out. You get a 30-night sleep trial. Sleep on them. Dream on them. If you don't love them, you can send them back for a full refund. Go to attitude.com forward slash model. Use the code model15 at checkout for 15% off your order. That's E-T-T-I-T-U-D-E dot com forward slash model. Use the code model15 at checkout. Again, that's attitude.com forward slash model. The very best sheets for improving sleep quality and improving sexy time. Go to attitude.com forward slash model. Now let's get to the Apple Podcast Review of the Week. Another five-star review titled, Thank You for Addressing Alcohol by LJR72. Hi, Sean. I've been a listener for a while, and I'm so glad you finally dedicated a show to alcohol. I've been working on quitting since last May. It is an edgy topic that so many health podcast shows tiptoe around with speak of moderation, which is impossible for many of us. I'm proud of you for living an alcohol-free life and exploring this topic that you've seen firsthand, how devastating an addiction it can be. Keep up the good work, clearing up any confusion about what healthy looks like. Wow, thank you so much for that acknowledgement and thank you for sharing your heart over on Apple Podcasts. And yes, we did a masterclass really breaking down the metabolic impact of alcohol, the influence on the microbiome, the influence on brain health and so much more. And of course, trying to keep an open mind when this subject matter comes up, because as you said, this can be a little bit of a trigger for people and something we don't want to know about, especially if we enjoy alcohol, we want to keep our head in the sand about it. But it's really just about informed consent and doing the best that we can with this knowledge. 
and also understanding that humans have a long lineage of connection with alcohol. So we dive into that a bit as well. So if you happen to not check out that episode, don't be afraid. Check it out. I think that you'll really, really enjoy it. And speaking of taboo topics, on this episode, we're going to be diving into some real talk about sex and sexual health and anatomy as well, and just really helping to turn the light bulb on for these amazing bodies that we live in and just to get educated about it. And I'm so grateful for our very special guest, Dr. Jolene Brighton. Dr. Brighton is a pioneer in women's medicine and an award-winning board-certified naturopathic endocrinologist and sex counselor. She's the author of the mega-hit best-selling book, Beyond the Pill, and she's working to empower women and empower couples worldwide to take control of their health and their hormones. Dr. Brighton is also a faculty member for the American Academy of Anti-Aging Medicine, and she's been featured on a variety of major media outlets. And now she's here back on the Model Health Show for another important conversation. Let's dive into this interview with the amazing Dr. Jolene Brighton. Dr. Jolene Brighton, welcome to the Model Health Show. It's good to see you again. Ah, so great to be here again. This is my home place now, you know, before in St. Louis and Thank you so much for coming by to hang out with us there. Yeah. Um, but, you know, it was a studio we would use, but then like P. Diddy would come and <laughs> drop some vocals there or something, you know. So, but to have you here at my place is really special. Yeah. Well, I love the studio. I mean, it's a, it's a great feel, friend. <laughs> thank you. Thank you. Well, today we're going to be talking about a myriad of topics that are really taboo in our culture. Mm, we're going to go there. <laughs> but also at the same time, these are critical things for our health, for our functionality and for our connection as mm -hmm. a species, really. And I want to kick things off by talking about the clitoris. Yeah. <laughs> so you actually shared in your book that the clitoris was actually taken out of a really major anatomy book mm -hmm. at one point. Like, we're that disconnected yeah. from the clitoris. Let's talk about it. Yeah, I think that's the thing that's most surprising to people is like medicine is the, what I call the clitoral conspiracy. Like, they're behind it. Mm -hmm. They're behind withholding information about the clitoris. So it was removed from Gray's Anatomy. And it wasn't until the 90s that it was acknowledged. But all the media was like, clitoris was discovered. It wasn't actually discovered. It was like, okay, we're finally at a place where we can like acknowledge this. And even then, it's taken decades for people to get the knowledge in their hands. And I mean, even still, I mean, the book has two clitoral diagrams. Um, so you will see a clitoris on in two different chapters. And my publishers were like, okay, so you want both of these? I'm like, yes, because we need to have like, this is the clitoris on its own. And this is the clitoris as it exists in the vulva. So you can have some concept because it's it's been information withheld from us from a very long for a very long time. And it is behind so much frustration, misunderstandings, and the orgasm gap, which is a it, like I say, it's a big abyss that like not even the world's like greatest daredevil could jump it. So in talking about the clitoris, what is its actual function? Oh, it only exists for pleasure. So a lot of people, maybe they remember it from biology, but maybe you didn't have that good of a biology teacher. So no fault there. Um, the clitoris and the penis are actually the same tissue. So when we start off as embryos, we are, we are only deviating once that XY pair gets washed over with testosterone. So the Y in response to testosterone goes penis, scrotum, testicles, and that penis is derived from the same tissue as the clitoris, except the penis also has to ejaculate and deliver urine. Multifunctional, that's kind of cool, but can't be too sensitive, right? It also is involved in pleasure, which I think we can all accept. The clitoris, nothing but pleasure. That's it. Yeah. You even share in the book, which, you know, going back to my university education that I paid for, we yeah. still don't really get that downloaded or explained in a way that really makes sense when it comes to the, the evolution of our development when we're mm -hmm. in the womb, right? Yeah. And we all start off with this female template mm -hmm. and then something happens, you know, yeah. we get kind of an explosion of certain hormones and then- we, we make some changes. There are some alterations that get made, but we're yeah. basically all starting off with this template and you put a comparison up with the penis and its associated parts yes. and the clitoris and its associated parts and they look eerily familiar. Yes, they absolutely do. And you know, it's so funny how 
I mean, when I talk about this online, people get big mad when I say we all start out phenotypically female. It's all female. And even when you have an XY chromosome, it doesn't always respond to those hormones. So just because you have the testosterone rush and all of that, we still may have genitalia that's looking more female. We have more variations than just XX and XY. Like we teach that way because it's simplistic and it's an easy way to understand it. But I mean, so all of that's complicated. I can understand why people get upset with that because they're like, no, gender is just binary. Like it's very simple. And I'm like, hmm, biology is rarely ever simple. But the idea that like men are a deviation from women, um, that like, you know, speaking of sexes, that I think really challenges people because if we go back to medicine, medicine has historically always taught like the male body is the archetype. Like the male body is like the standard of being. And then we have this like inferior version that sometimes bleeds and it comes with these like baby making accessories called the female body. And that's really how it's been treated. You look at anatomy textbook real estate and how much goes to the penis and to like nail genitalia and the pelvis and then to like female, you know, anatomy. It's like and you get a couple pages um, and you're not seeing the clitoris being well represented even now in medical schools, which is kind of frightening given that there's procedures being done that doctors weren't trained to fully understand the clitoris. Yeah. And so just to make some of the comparisons, you know, we see, for example, the testes drop down, mm -hmm. whereas in the original template, they would be the ovaries. Yes. Right. Mm -hmm. And so, again, we don't really think about that. And also the opening, you know, mm -hmm. the vaginal opening that essentially gets sealed up in yeah. a sense, and that's that long line that you might notice for the male reproductive parts. Mm -hmm. But I think that, well, I know this because I used to think that I was like, this must be a circumcision yeah. scar, yeah. but it's not from that. That's where everything kind of sealed up. Yeah. Crazy. It is super crazy, right? Um, and that's exactly why I put that in the book is I was like, we need to have that comparison so people just understand. And I think like, um, you know, as an author, like words are great, but when you start talking about some of these more complex things, it's like we we need to have images. We need to have things there. And when you can't go to a lot of anatomy textbooks and actually find these images, I'm like, I actually hired an artist to hand draw the images that are in the book. So they are one of a kind drawn so that people can really understand. And it's not this gate kept thing anymore. Yeah. When you mentioned earlier, by the way, Grey's Anatomy, you make the distinction in the book. It's not the TV show. <laughs> not the We're talking TV about show. the anatomy book. Yeah. And there was a time period where the clitoris was just taken out of mm -hmm. this text. And it's so unfortunate because, again, as you mentioned, this is an aspect of pleasure. Yeah. And I think that in our culture, we've been kind of manipulated into, into removing pleasure from mm -hmm. the equation and also not even considering pleasure for women in a, in a strange way. It's just like, yeah. this is the way that we do it. And, you know, that's kind of the end of the story. But let's talk a little bit about the pleasure aspect when it comes to the clitoris and just sex in general, because you point out so many of the questions that your patients have had over the years. And I showed you the emoji. I drew an emoji <laughs> of like an, oh my God, face yeah. in the book. And I was just, I had my jaw dropped at so many points throughout the book, just riveted with the information. But they're asking essentially, is this normal? Yeah. You know, is, is the way that my clitoris looks normal? Mm -hmm. The way that my vagina looks, is that normal? And you also talk about, so number one, let's talk about pleasure. Yeah. And let's talk about when people are asking like, is it normal for me to have an orgasm or to not have an orgasm? Mm -hmm. Or to, is it being difficult to have an orgasm? Yeah. Well, let me ask you, what do you remember from your sex ed? Oh my goodness. First of all, wildly uncomfortable, right? <laughs> yes. And because I, I was in eighth grade, I yeah. remember I was in eighth grade and it was just, it was very, very primitive in a sense, you mm. know, um, as far as education is concerned. Yeah, yeah. But if we would be more primitive, to be honest, it would be a, a lot better. Um, but, you know, we had the banana scenario oh, yeah. with the condom. It was a lot of fear-based information. Mm -hmm. It was framed in a way for, about fear. Yeah. And there was no acknowledgement of pleasure. It's just yeah. kind of something that you want to avoid, mm -hmm. right? So that's what I remember. Yeah, well, you're spot on. That's the majority of people. They get a fear-based education. And what has been found through the research is that when you actually have pleasure-based education, you see lower incidences of STIs, 
people, they delay when they have their first sexual activity. They're more monogamous. They report that the first time is pleasurable. The first time is fun. In the United States, we don't have that. We have that fear-based. And so what people often report is that the first time they felt pressured, they regret it. They felt coerced sometimes. Um, And they felt like they did something wrong, like a lot of shame around it. So there's other countries that are doing that more pleasure-based focus. And even the World Health Organization is they have statements where they're like, when we teach pleasure first, like sex can be fun and safe. People are more safe when sex is fun. And when you ask people what the, the, the condom on the banana, people are like, I remember the condom on the banana. I don't know why. Why do we put a condom on a banana? Why do we wear condoms? Like, because that fear-based approach basically starts shutting you down. You can't take in information. You're just like, oh my God, sex is the scariest thing. The other thing we see is when pleasure is the focus. So like in the Netherlands, Germany, they have done a great job and we have had a generation basically go through this that now we have young adults who have had that education. And so I think that's phenomenal. We're getting these outcomes. They also have less frequency of unintended pregnancies compared to the United States, which has 18 states offering medically accurate sex education. Very few are giving consent as part of that. And almost no one is talking about pleasure. And especially when it comes to the female body, the conversation is usually like vagina. That is where blood and babies come out and penises go in. And everything is very male-centered because male pleasure results in ejaculation. Ejaculation results in babies. And the only reason you should have sex is so that you have a baby. If that's the thinking, then it's going to be male-centered because having an orgasm, there's an upsuck theory I talk about in the book, but having an orgasm for a woman That's not necessary for baby making. Like she just has to like retrieve sperm. Like sperm has to just make its way into the canal. Um, I would actually say like, no, pleasure is very important in the baby making experience. Um, But with all of that, I think what people miss out on is the concept that life should be pleasurable. So you talk to a lot of people in the health space. I talk to a lot of people in the health space. I get really just like salty about the like, food is fuel. And like, you know, if you're enjoying it, like you, it is just like to be fueling your body. And I'm like, disrespectfully, no. Okay. Like, I don't want to, I don't, that's not my jam. Like food should be pleasurable. Um, you know, being with your partner, like being with someone else, like this should be pleasurable. Like as humans, we are wired to seek pleasure and to have these pleasurable experiences. And that is about quality of life. That is going to have a major impact on your health. Whereas like, you know, if everything is just going through the motions, um, you're not going to be mindful. We're not going to have that mindfulness. We're not going to have the full human experience. That begs the question, like, why the hell are you even here? Right. Oh, my goodness. Yeah. The eat to live, don't live to eat phenomenon. The thing is, just getting back to like a basic perception of this stuff, we're driven to eat things because they taste good. That's Mm -hmm. like why we have taste buds. Yeah. Yeah. And it's an important part of our life and our evolution. And the same thing with sex. We just see it as like, This is why we're born is to procreate, keep the Mm -hmm. species going. But what drives us to want to do the thing is that it's supposed to be pleasurable. Yeah. You're supposed to like it. Imagine that. And it seems so unfair that it takes the pleasure and the education on pleasure Mm -hmm. for women out of the equation in so much of what we've been taught as a people. Even when we are going outside of the kind of textbook education, Mm -hmm. which is so unfortunate, but then looking into the world of like things like where a lot of people are learning about how to do it is from mm-hmm. pornography. You and- should see my browser history, friend. <laughs> like really in searching for this book, when people ask me questions, I'm like, where, why are they asking that? Like I'm, you know, because as a doctor, it's like, I know where I got this information. I have this information now, but like, okay, so I'm not a doctor. Where do people, where do they get these ideas? And so I set off to Google. I actually had to reconfigure my office because a number of times I would land on a website And it looked legit and it had text starting out. And I was like, this is reading really well. Like, good job, SEO team or whatever. And then I would scroll down and a video is playing. And I'm just like, whoa, 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 whoa. I did not consent to this. So having children in the house, I'm like, my desk needs to be against a wall so that if I'm ever on something and my child walks in, I don't have to have that conversation before before his time. He's only 10. He's not using Google in this way. But It is like this is a big reason for the book as well, is that I want parents to have this information, to learn this and then be the expert in their own house so that 
their children come to them before they go to a CD website like I have landed on um, because that information seems really legit the way it's positioned. And then you're met with like non-consensual uh, explicit images. And I say it's non-consensual because I didn't know what I was entering into. Um, and then, you know, they're, they're met with that, like, and they're not ready maybe for that. That's overwhelming to see those images and the things that are going on. And I think, you know, back when we were growing up, there wasn't the internet to go like find this information on. You were like, I was like Dewey Decimal System in it, like going through the library being like, what the hell is going on with my period here? And there were like no books. I'm like looking at medical books and being like, well, like this is not explain why I'm in so much pain. So, you know, I think at every generation we've all like want, wondered, like, is this normal? And have tried to like covertly seek out that information because we feel so ashamed. And I'm really hoping this book is going to help people get their questions answered, but also prepare them to be the expert in their own house, like we see in these other countries that are having better outcomes. Like these children have open communication with their parents. Like these parents are teaching their toddlers consent. And people are like, they don't need to learn consent. Like consent's a sex thing. No. Teaching someone it's okay to say, I don't want to hug or have to ask before you like take a hug. That is okay. Like that is a good thing to be doing, arguably. But in these countries, like these, these, the, you know, they're, I mean, they're like teens. So I mean, to me as a mom, they're like kids, but like they're young adults. They're having open conversations with their parents, which is what is helping lower their risk and making sure that they're staying safe. So it's this open communication, this pleasure first and moving out of that fear-based state. that's having the best outcomes of what we really want as parents. It's so silly the way that we act and try to hide things and yeah. taboo and and, um, you know, I was just, I can't help but think about other species, yeah. you know, like they're not like, okay. <laughs> they have an anus out in the open. Like what is going on there? <laughs> but just thinking about this, we have a way to kind of like make it anthropomorphic things where we're putting like clothes on animals and yeah. things like that. And just like, when is it appropriate to have such and such conversation? Yeah. For the most part, what happens is we don't have the conversation, mm. right? And then the our, and there's this quote from my mother-in-law that she shared with my wife, which is if your if your mother doesn't teach you, the world will. Uh-huh. Right? Yes. Or if your parent that doesn't right teach there. you, the world will. And is it is it framed in a way that's helpful if the world does? Because mm -hmm. our world is fair. I mean, today more than ever, oh, yeah. it is batch crazy. And manipulative. And manipulative. Like there's yeah. somebody out there trying to manipulate you for the means to their end. And that's like, I mean, like I said, I ended up on these CD websites, but then there's also things like women being shamed and the jokes that go around, like whenever men are like, oh, her vagina smells. And I'm like, tell me you know nothing about the female body without telling me. Like really the joke's on you, sir. Um, but this shame kind of based thing, you see women going and Googling that and what they're finding is, I mean, the marketing for all of the douche and feminine hygiene products, they know, they know what you're searching for. And so they're gonna land there and they're gonna be the ones to educate you first to say, you should smell like a clementine or a vanilla. And I'm like, what are we making cocktails or a pie? Like what is happening here? Um, and so it's even things like that, which people can be like, oh, well, that's benign until we start talking about the increased incidences of infections and all of the issues that can come. Like you're messing with the vaginal microbiome, something we just started studying. And we know, okay, so back when I was getting my nutrition degree, the microbiome was just a bunch of freeloaders that made a little bit of B12 and vitamin K. Like, don't worry about them. There's just a bunch of bacteria and stuff. Now, what do we know? Now we're like, oh, man, we said what? Like, yeah. and I'm like, the vaginal microbiome is likely going to be that way as well. As we study it more and more, we're finding out like, it is phenomenal. It is so important for health. It is important for the health of the future of the human race that is birthed through that canal. Like, there is so much more to it. And so, I think we should be taking all of this very seriously. Yeah, you you shared in the book some, again, I had so many moments, I'm like, oh my God, like yeah. Lysol being used <laughs> yeah. for, for basically, you know, cleaning the vagina. Yeah. This was like a real thing like a hundred years ago. Well, what they were doing is that, um, you know, you couldn't like, you couldn't have birth control because like only promiscuous women have birth control. And like, um, again, like policing women's bodies and always re reducing them to their reproductive capacity and trying to keep them pure, like whatever the hell that means. Um, and so feminine hygiene was a code word for basically like, don't get knocked up, like use Lysol. That's going to kill like the sperm. Um, it's going to kill a lot of things, including some of the people that it killed. But when, you know, then we had like the introduction of um, contraceptives, 
they had to pivot. Like the feminine hygiene peeps, they had to pivot and they pivoted to let's just shame women. And there was, oh my God, there was um like this old marketing that you'll see where they're like, if you want to keep your husband at home, then you need to make sure that you're clean down here. Or like, if you don't want him to leave you, you need to be douching. And I'm like, you're the douche. Like what is going on here? <laughs> Right. Oh my gosh. Summer breeze. You should smell like a summer breeze. Yeah. So we're going to come back. Smell like? We're okay. going to, we're going to come back and talk about that. But first I want to conclude, which we can't really conclude this conversation. It's endless. It's the never ending story, yeah. but to get more clitorate, yeah. as you call it, um, just to circle the conversation back to this important aspect of human anatomy that mm -hmm. has to do with pleasure. Yeah. And so with that being said, you also go through the spectrum in the book of people's concerns about their ability to experience pleasure. Yeah. And you talk about the kind of biochemical aspect and also the psychological mental aspect mm -hmm. and how that all is married together. But we tend to not think about these things. Yeah. It's just like, are you doing it or not? Do you feel like mm -hmm. it's a, a chore? Do you enjoy it? We have these kind of life experiences of the thing, but we're not thinking about what's happening behind the scenes. Yeah. So I want to talk about number one, the how. I want to talk a little bit about the how yeah. to give pleasure through that, through being more clitorate. Mm -hmm. But also I want to talk about the resistance or the barriers to pleasure yeah. that are often occurring for women today. Mm -hmm. So I have to say, so uh, being more clitorate, Ian Kern is a great book for all men to read. Um, she comes first and he came up with that term. And I think it is... It is one of my favorite terms ever because it is exactly what everybody needs to get to that pleasure. So um, if you are not a vulva owner, you are likely not familiar with where the clitoris is. And the best way to approach pleasuring your partner is to ask them what they like. And so in the book, I do show like, here's where the um, clitoris is and how to find it. And then I go over, you know, that is the key way to orgasm. So once upon a time, Freud ruined everything. And he was like, the vaginal orgasm is what every woman should to aspire to because the clitoral orgasm is very infantile. What he was really saying is I'd like to put my penis in there and you should enjoy it no matter what, if you are like the star woman, right? Like if you have achieved these things. So again, very male centered, where in reality, Majority of women are not going to have an orgasm via penile penetration. So the way most people think of sex, they're like penis and vagina. There's a whole chapter of sex of all kinds. And you can find that there is many ways to approach this that bring pleasure for people. Um, so a lot of people, you know, they're taught that right in sex ed, like that's what sex is. And then men, like they are, have so much pressure on them. I think this doesn't get talked about enough about how they're supposed to be a stallion in the bedroom. They please women. They should go forever. The research is actually like women don't want you to go forever. They just want you to love up the clitoris like this is what they want. And men don't get taught about the clitoris. And I think it's really unfortunate that they are always like at the butt of jokes. And, um, you know, it's like, oh, a man can't find the clit. Like he wants to find it. OK, he does. But like nobody teaches us how to even have conversations about sex. And it's like very simple of like, do you like this? Would you like more of this? How's this pressure? Like those kinds of things. But you, like, a lot of people are like, I can't even, I can't even say that in the bedroom. So finding the clitoris is first. Um, if you start at the top where um, there may or may not be hair, but um, the mons pubis, pubis, there's um, a little patch usually up there, like it's a soft spot and you come down, you're going to find the clitoris. The external part is going to be right there underneath the clitoral hood. And if you're stimulating that, starting with usually, so per the research, I'm going to say this is per the research in general, but you have to ask your partner because they know their body best. Imagine that. Um, is actually starting with a rhythmic motion. It's about medium pressure and most women prefer a back and forth or circular motion. And it's very easy to get excited. So anybody listening, if you do get excited that you start to speed up and they're like, ow, don't do that. That's not, that's just them being like, you know, on the tarmac, like this way, that way. They're just giving you instructions. It's nothing personal and it's normal to get excited and then to like speed things up. So asking them, checking in with them. So that's the way that you approach that. The other thing I would say is lube. 
there's so many times in the book that I, I I was reading the audiobook and I'm like, how many times do I say lube? And I'm like, you know what? Still not enough because I still think see things like on TikTok. There's this bro. He's like, if she's not wet, she's not the one. I was like, uh, well, arguably wow. you're not the one, sir. I don't think you understand how this works. But also it's normal, especially based on certain times of our cycle or where our hormones are at for things to be a little more dry. So that's the clitoral component. You wanted to talk about hormones as well. So where do you want to go with hormones in that conversation? Before we, before we transition from the clitoris. Okay. We can I, stay on it. Yeah, we can, yeah, 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 yeah. Let's, let's do that. All right. So before we, we leave this area, um, with that stimulation, can the clitoris change? Oh, yes. Okay. So do penises change? Yes. Um, clitoris, same thing. Tissue becomes engorged. It becomes erect. Um, that, and it's important to understand that sometimes there's a disconnect between brain and genitals. And so this is known as arousal non-concordance. The research is like, wait a minute, brain is lighting up. Like, I love this. I'm like, this is pleasure. And the genitals are like not on board just yet. Like what's happening? Sometimes there's a disconnect in that memo. So things won't get as wet. Maybe the clitoris is not getting as, as engorged yet. Maybe tenting hasn't occurred yet. That's when the vagina makes way. It's like, we might have penetration. So let's just like make the space a little bit larger just in case so that it's comfortable and pleasurable. So that sometimes you're like really into it, but the genitals just haven't gotten there yet. And then other times um, I've had people. So once people figured out, I told them, Ask Dr. Brayton is anonymous on um, Instagram. I started getting all kinds of messages. And one of them is uh, that I just found so interesting is like I'm scrolling through social media and I will find that I'm really turned on. And sometimes like like I'm heterosexual, but I'm really turned on by this woman. Am I like gay and I didn't know it or like what's happening? And really what's going on is the brain is surveying sex and the brain's like, hey, that's sex. And the genitals are like, woohoo, sex, let's get ready. And then you're like, no, I'm not into this. You're not into this. And so the like the end all be all of this story is, is that the genitals are not in charge. The brain is in charge. So mm -hmm. consent is either yes or no. And if the genitals are saying yes, but the brain says no, it's still no. Wow. And also, you know, contrary to popular belief, the brain is really the biggest sexual organ, mm -hmm. you know, and I shared some research and we'll put it up on the screen for everybody. But um, this research team, the lead investigator, he spent like a couple of decades studying female orgasm. Yeah. And it lights up like 30 areas of the brain indicating more blood flow, circulation, infusion of nutrients, all those good things. Exactly why so, you can live longer with more orgasms. <laughs> and it so outperforms anything else that we're doing for brain health. Yeah. Like, you know, doing some Sudoku or, you know, crossword puzzles for brain health. It lights up a couple of areas. It's something so remarkable yeah as far as the human brain we're talking about orgasm yeah and the fact that it is an act of mindfulness like you have to be so present to be able to achieve orgasm this is where it can be so difficult where women are like i'm in the mood i'm aroused and then i'm not like really common to have that happen and if it's happening usually it's like it's the things that like we all do um and if you're a woman you never have done this like tell me your secrets of where you're like like, you know, I'm sitting in this position, like, uh, you know, I'm, I'm thinking about how does my body look? You're in sex and you're like, oh, are they noticing my stretch marks? I'm in this position right now. Like, can they see my roles? Like, oh, like, what does this look like? You're spectating. You're like leaving your body and observing what's going on. Um, I was just like, you know, thinking I was actually listening to Kendrick Lamar and he's like, show me something real, like an ass with some stretch marks. And I'm like, he wants ass with some stretch marks, ladies, like Kendrick, okay? He's like into this, like, like, okay, so he's into this. And most people who are having sex with you, they're lucky enough to be having sex with you. They're not even thinking about that. Their brain is flooded with all these things that they can't pay attention. So it's really easy to fall out of arousal and be very frustrated and unable to orgasm because you're running all this like fear, right? Oh my God. Like they didn't get STI tested and, and your poor body like overrode you on any common sense, like no judges on that because it was like brain was like sex. And like you said, orgasms so good for the brain. Um, the hormones that it releases like literally anti-aging, like take you backwards, like compared to all the stress hormones that we are experiencing every day. 
why wouldn't your body want to seek that out? Why wouldn't your body want those things? Like that is a total normal experience. Yeah. Wow. Thank you for sharing that. Got a quick break coming up. We'll be right back. Few people know that regularly drinking coffee has been shown to help prevent cognitive decline and reduce the risk of developing Alzheimer's and Parkinson's disease. This attribute referenced in the journal Practical Neurology is yet another reason why intelligent coffee consumption makes the list of best neuronutritious beverages. Another study featured in the journal Psychopharmacology uncovered that drinking coffee has some remarkable benefits on mental performance. The researchers found that intelligent coffee intake leads to improvements in alertness, improved reaction times, and enhanced performance on cognitive vigilance tasks and tasks that involve deep concentration. Now, why am I stressing intelligent coffee intake? This means acknowledging the true U-shaped curve of benefits and not going ham on caffeine. The data clearly shows that some coffee, a cup or two a day, and the accompanying caffeine is a great adjunct for improved mental performance. But going too far starts to lead to diminishing returns. So we wanna make sure that we're getting an optimal intake of coffee, and again, not going overboard. But also, coffee is best when it's not coming along with pesticides, herbicides, rodenticides, fungicides, these chemical elements are clinically proven to destroy our microbiome terrain. So destroying the very microbiome that helps to regulate our metabolism, regulate our immune system, the list goes on and on. Obviously, we wanna make sure that those things are not coming along with the high quality coffee that we're trying to get these benefits from. And also, what if we can up-level the longevity and neurological benefits of the coffee by combining it with another clinically proven nutrient source. Well, that's what I do every day when I have the organic coffee combined with the dual extracted medicinal mushrooms from Four Sigmatic. And if we're talking about optimal cognitive performance and the health of our brain, the protection of our brain, there are few nutrient sources like lion's mane medicinal mushroom that pack these kind of benefits. Researchers at the University of Malaya found that lion's mane has neuroprotective effects literally being able to help to defend the brain against even traumatic brain injuries. It just makes the brain more healthy and robust. So again, this combination of medicinal mushrooms plus organic high quality coffee is a match made in nutrient heaven. Go to foursigmatic.com forward slash model. That's F-O-U-R-S-I-G-M-A-T-I-C.com forward slash model to get 10% off their incredible mushroom elixirs, mushroom hot cocos, and mushroom coffees. Again, that's foursigmatic.com forward slash model. And now back to the show. So in the book, you also talk about some of the mental barriers and also biochemical barriers. Yeah. Because again, hearing all this is just like, I want that. And also even in our timeline, in our story, Maybe you were with somebody and at the beginning of your relationship, you guys just couldn't keep your hands off each other. Then it's always that way, right? Kids happen, <laughs> life happens, all the thing. And now it's become like something other than. Yeah, And, yeah. you know, I saw this one particular line that you shared. It was, you were quoting one of your patients. And basically she said, I want to go back to that. Yeah. Right? And it's just kind of like a fantasy. It's like, but it's, it's so distant because mm -hmm. of life stuff. So. Yeah. Can you talk a little bit about, number one, let's talk about some of the psychological aspects yeah. that could be a barrier to sex and enjoying sex. Mm -hmm. and then we can talk about hormones after that. Okay. So when it comes to barriers, I think, so, you know, for men, it's very linear. And so I'm not a man, but I think for men, they're like, this is the way it works for me. Therefore, like, this is the way it should work for you. And whenever I start talking about this information, somebody rolls in and they're like, this doesn't take into account what I do every day. And I go to work and I work so hard. So when I come home, I shouldn't have to do anything else. Like, and she should just be having sex with me. And I'm like, okay, let me give you the benefit of the doubt that uh, what you're not intending to say, but what you are saying is that you're entitled to her body. You're entitled to sex. And that like, no matter what you do, that's yours. Like no matter what. And it's not that way for women. So Yes, we like orgasms. Yes, we like pleasure. Sometimes we have sex because we want to bond. We want to feel more intimate. 
Some women are stressed and they're like, I know this is going to help because oxytocin will be like, shut up, cortisol. Like, I'm, we're not even going to hear that right now. So there's a lot of reasons why women will enter into sex. And there's a lot of reasons that can shut down a woman wanting to have sex. So um, there's a great model. These researchers came up with a sexual excitation and inhibition model. And in the book, I talk about inhibition is basically the brakes. And then we have the gas pedal, which is excitation. And if you've ever tried to drive a car, um, and maybe you have done this, with your foot on the brake and you're pushing on the accelerator, maybe it goes, but it doesn't go the way it's not smooth. It's not an easy glide. Like it's and sex is like the same way. So we have to understand, which is why I put a quiz in the book, like how touchy are gas pedals? So maybe you're someone who's just like sex on the brain all the time. And how touchy are the brakes? And what most men tend to focus on, and like we're talking about heterosexual relationships because that's where the orgasm gap and this pleasure gap exists. For most men, they're like, okay, roses, scented candles, get a bubble bath, um, you know, buy her lingerie, like let's hit the accelerator. What women mostly need is dampening of the brakes. And so if you think about like your nervous system being like train tra a train track and the train is the sex train, like getting to the brain saying like, hey, sex time. So the brain can like receive that package and be like, let's go. It's the things that are outside the bedroom that become barriers. So maybe she had a really hard day and she wants to talk to you about that. And you're like, yeah, not now. The game's on. I'll talk to you later. Break. And then she had asked you like, oh, I asked you to pick up these things at the store. Like, were you able to do that? You said you'd, you'd pick that up. Oh, yeah, I couldn't find this thing. So I got this one thing. But like, you can, you can pick it up on your way home tomorrow. Another break. Um, you know, she had an incredibly stressful day at work. Like everything was like, you know, falling apart. Like, so that break already existed. That had nothing to do with you, but that already existed. And then, you know, she goes into the bedroom and it's the end of the day and she's super tired and she's like, oh my God, I just slipped on a pair of his underwear because he couldn't make it into the laundry basket again. Break. Now this feels like sometimes to a man hearing this, like you're just harping on me about all of that. But like, literally these are things that are putting breaks in her nervous system. So the game's over. And for you, you're just like, ooh, like she's bending over in the freezer, like getting some ice. Like I'm into this. Like, let me rub up on her because that's all it took for you. You try to send that sexy signal and that train cannot get through all of those barriers. So then it's that feeling of like, she's not into me, like I'm being rejected when in reality, she can't, she can't process that. She can't pick it up. Like her brain has to clear those blockades before she's able to actually get that signal. And so those are just some of the relationship breaks. I mean, we can also have breaks like, I don't want to get pregnant, but like, I don't have my birth control prescription or we don't have any condoms. And like, that's going to be a hard break for a lot of people where they're like, well, a lot of women, especially in the current state of the United States are going to be like, break, can't do it. Like, I'm too afraid right now. Yeah. Wow. I love this analogy with the gas, you know, again, because for, you could even begin have the intention and, and have feelings like I want to do it, mm -hmm. but then the having the break on at the same time with all these other things, the yeah. psychological factors, this could deter the act, action of sex, but also the fulfillment mm -hmm. of sex as well. Yeah. So we've got this part. Now let's talk a little bit about what can be happening with our biochemistry, mm -hmm. you know, especially at different times of our lives. When I say our, I'm including myself in, in team women right now, but <laughs> different times in women's lives and also uh, different times of the month. Yeah. Well, what I came across in the research and I absolutely loved was this concept of the sexual phase. So, and I will say that in my program, in my book, I do talk about the ovulatory phase. Um, and I'm going to say what I love about the idea of the sexual phase is that if you don't want to have a baby for whatever reason, it's a way of looking at your cycle that doesn't just reduce you to your reproductive capacity. Um, for my program, I wanted people to actually understand ovulation and understand all of the hormones, but that, that naming it the sexual phase is so brilliant. So for people who are like, ovulation, sexual phase, what are we talking about? Let's break it down. So there's a hormone called luteinizing hormone. It leaves the brain and it hits the ovaries and says, ovulate that egg. So, and then what happens is about 24 to 48 hours later, an egg is released. That's ovulation, which by the way, you only ovulate once in a cycle and it only has about 24 hours to live. So you can only get pregnant one day of the month, but sperm can live five. And why this matters is because about three days before that LH spike, you're going to be in the mood. 
You're going to see libido going up. This is estrogen and testosterone. They're scheming. They're like, there's supposed to be an egg and we're going to get some like sperm. And it like it does not care what relationship you're in or who you sleep with. Like the biology, the ovaries are like, we have an agenda. Like this is what we're doing. So about three days before that LH spike, the day of the LH spike, and then about a day or two after, that's the sexual phase. That's going to be the peak of your sexual excitation. Women fantasize more. So there's more fantasies. This is when you might be scrolling TikTok and you're like, ooh, they look so good. Or you're on the grocery store checkout line and you're like, on the magazine, like my brain is registering sex. Like it's going to be higher at this phase of your cycle. Easier to get aroused. Uh, orgasms happen quicker. They can be a lot more intense and multiples are easier to achieve during this phase of the cycle. This is why it's the sexual phase of the cycle. Now, why it's about one to two days after the LH spike, once you ovulate, there is a structure. It's a temporary endocrine structure left in the ovaries called the corpus luteum. It produces progesterone. And progesterone is like, you know what? Let's get into some sweatpants rather than getting into their pants. Like, I'm not, I'm not into that. You already did the egg thing. We don't need it. We don't need any of that. So you might be more inclined to like cuddling, make out sessions, and like maybe less inclined to be seeking out sex. However, you still can have sex during that time. And it's important to have that progesterone up because if it's not, estrogen comes up, you become more critical of your partner, you're cranky, you're bloated, like your breasts are tender, like that, none of that is sexy time. Um, and this is also going to be one of the driest times of your cycle. So as you leave ovulation, you're entering the luteal phase. And then as progesterone is rising about five to seven days afterwards, now down there is feeling a lot more dry. It's harder to um, maybe it takes you longer to orgasm. It's taking you longer to get aroused. You're not self-lubricating. That's all normal because that's how the hormones are operating and that's how they're designed. This is also such a common time where men are like, you said, there's like this tweet that like goes viral. Like everybody just keeps reposting it and I see it. And the guy's like, why is it like one minute women are like so into us and then the next, like she could care less about me. I'm like, that's progesterone. That's ovulation. Like prior to ovulation, she was like, I cannot keep my hands off you. You are everything. Post ovulation, she's like, meh, like, <laughs> meh. And like, that's all normal. And so it just requires understanding your body, understanding your partner's body and having open communication around that. Wonderful. So what about during the period mm -hmm. itself? When, when, when the blood flow takes place, like yeah. is there a shift over with estrogen and progesterone in that period right there? So to have a period, we have to drop the hormones. And so progesterone goes away, that triggers the endometrial lining to shed, which is a period. This is a time where people will be like covertly like, yo, I really love having sex on my period, or I'm like really in the mood. Is that weird? Not weird, totally normal. Progesterone left, testosterone's like, bye, like <laughs> I'm here now. Um, and so it's a very common time. It's also, right before your period and the first day of your period, low, low risk of becoming pregnant. So if you're someone who has that fear, that fear is removed. You're like, I'm bleeding right now. Like there's like, no one can set up shop in my uterus. Like I'm good. And then not to mention that period sex, it's a, if you're having penetrative sex, it's an internal massage. That can be lovely for the uterus. And orgasms, they're going to release endorphins. That's going to help with pain. So less in period cramps and there has been some research showing it may even shorten the period. Not like it's going to drastically shorten your period, but it just like speeds things along. Like, all right, let's move this out and like get it over with. Amazing. Amazing. This is so fascinating. So what about the taboos around having sex on the period? Like, it's just like, that is, it's, it's so off limits. It's not mm -hmm. even a, a concept for a lot of people. Yeah. I and mean, it's, it really, so some of it is religious. Um, it was interesting because I was um, corresponding with a Jewish couple online trying to figure out, she was like, I have to go away like this part of my cycle and I can't, like, he can't even touch me on my period. And I was just trying to figure out like, well, what if you like ovulate on like day 10 and like, you know, just like, and they're like, what? We've never, uh, we've never even thought about that. And I'm like, well, then you would you think you're infertile, but you're just missing ovulation because you have to wait for this period of time. And like, I'm not going to tell you what to do. Like, and so there is like this religious component where it is very taboo. And so I definitely respect that, that there is nothing really taboo about it from a scientific perspective. People are like, oh, you're going to get like an STI. If their partner has an STI, you're going to get an STI. Like it doesn't matter if you're bleeding or not. Some research is like, oh, there could be a higher risk, but it's like 
if there's a risk, there's a risk. Like, why are we like debating? Oh, do you like wait until she's done bleeding and still have unprotected sex? Like, no, like, no, 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 we're not doing that. But it is a very taboo thing. And I think a lot of that comes back to the root of shame, right? Periods are icky. Women are, should be feeling shameful about it. Like, um, I mean, it took until my 30s to stop smuggling tampons up my sleeve, like going to the bathroom. I like had a moment sitting in a restaurant. I was like in Proud Mary in Portland, Oregon. I remember sitting there and being at a table with my father-in-law and like family. And I go to put the tampon up my sleeve. And I was like, what the hell are you doing? And I'm like, I'm in my early 30s. And I'm just like, this is dumb. Like, why are you why are you doing this? Like, you bleed. You have a child. Like, he knows this. Everybody knows this at the table. And it was like the first time I like walked to the bathroom with a tampon out. And I was just like, oh, like people know what I'm going to do right now. It was definitely like this psychological moment. But I was like, when does this end? When do I stop being a tampon smuggler? <laughs> like, when does this end? Because the mental burden on me to keep other people comfortable because yeah. I was on my period so that they like don't know it and don't feel I think like when I when I just talk about that piece now take it to the period sex level and you know people are often surprised when I'm like look once my office door closes there's a lot of men who are like I'm really into that like I'm really into this and it is one of those things that people are like they love to shame people about fetishes sometimes it's a fetish or sometimes it's just hot of how into you your partner is during that time and they also don't have the fear of pregnancy now, in the book, of course, you go into more than just the cycle itself, but also our overall life cycles mm -hmm. and how hormones can change. And just, be, again, becoming more aware of this yeah. because everything is unfortunately taboo, but you're blowing the doors open on these conversations and it's so amazing. But something that you said several times through this episode, you mentioned lube. Oh, yes. Now, could lubrication, you know, just kind of run of the mill... One of the things in the book that most blew my mind, like I had to yell into the other room, like, babe, did you know that <laughs> you were sharing some of the things that people end up in the ER for, you know, oh, for putting yes. up there, all yes. right? And one of them was like Pop Rocks, yeah, the yeah. candy. Yeah. And I'm just like, people, what they're doing, what? One of them was like animals. <laughs> yes. I'm like, babe, there's animals. And then it's just like, oh, yeah, of course. But um, I want to ask you about safe lubrication. Like, yeah. is any lube, like, is, you know, chocolate syrup? You know what yeah. I mean? Like, because yeah. again, like we think about these things, you're, you're literally going through and sharing like, okay, this is, these are green light things Yeah, yeah. There's that, green are, that are suitable for the light, vagina. These things are red light. Yeah. And you know, when I saw the chocolate syrup and the whipped cream, all these things, I'm just like, that sounds like an R&B music video, video right know, there. Right? Like, like I thought that, you know what I'm saying? That was sexy, <laughs> right? Yeah. But this can cause some serious yeah. damage to the microbiome of the vagina. So let's talk about safe lubrication. Totally. So, um, I mean, food always seems like a good idea until you've got like a yeast infection and you're like, what was I doing? Or BV's taken over and you're like, oh, my life right now. So, um, and it is something that like people, they see this in the media, right? Like R&B videos, like all of this stuff. I'm just like, tell me that men were on the set, right? Um, Cause there's even like vaginal melts now where it's like, oh, it just tastes like a creamsicle. And I'm like, I can get like how that's like kind of fun, but also like, not necessary, like not necessary at all. So there's that the pop rocks thing I have to say on um that that I've seen I've heard a lot. I'm like surprised because I'm like sometimes that hurt my mouth as a kid. Like so like I mean some people are adventurous. Um so when we talk about safe lubes, no food is gonna be a safe lube. Sands like coconut oil. That's gonna be one of those things that it, it's also controversial because people are like but it's antimicrobial, so it's going to disrupt like, you know, it could kill off the yeast and potentially with the lubes that are being made with coconut oil. I've never had a patient have an issue with it. And in fact, I've had patients who switch away from the glycerin containing lubes to the coconut base and their yeast problems go away. Mm -hmm. So people understand um, if a vagina develops bacterial vaginosis, which is the bacteria that causes the fish-like odor after sex or develops a yeast infection after sex, that's because a penis went in and disrupted her microbiome in there. So the vagina should be acidic. Semen is alkaline. It has to be. It's the only way to make them survive. And so it's a disruption of the pH. So people often are shaming women of like, oh, this and this about your vagina. But in reality, it's like, yeah, but he he did that. Like, And, and if you had a good time, could you just stop shaming like about it? So um, that's like the piece we would get concerned about with lubes is like disruption of the microbiome. 
Having things like spermicide in your lubes may disrupt the vaginal microbiome. There tends to be a threshold that if you're doing a lot, which could be reapplying, 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 that could be disruptive and be problematic. Um, you know, the run-of-the-mill small amount of spermicide, not as problematic, but we still just want to be mindful of that. Um, so that's when people are like, let me put some spermicide and combine it with the lube in there. Um, there are endocrine disruptors in lubes. We have to be mindful of those things. So you want to be looking for paraben-free. Um, there, I get people who are like, well, it's not that much of a dose. I'm like, we deliver hormones into the vagina. If you're postmenopausal, we put it in there because it's a mucous membrane. The vagina shares the same tissue as your inner cheek. So anybody who's listening who's like, what does a vagina feel like? Just reach in your mouth. That's what it feels like inside. Same tissue. That is a highly absorbent tissue, right? We can put medications under the tongue. We can put medications in the vagina. They can be absorbed. Endocrine disruptors are going to get in. And for people who are not familiar, I often get people asking like, well, I mean, do they, they're not that problematic for hormones. I'm like, I didn't name them. Someone named them endocrine disruptors. It was not me because they do disrupt your hormones. So we want to watch out for those things. Um, and if you are using lube, uh, the other thing is just making sure that you're using like the right kind for the job. So a lot of them uh, that you'll see are water-based. You have to reapply those. And it's not great for anal sex. You can have a lot of friction tearing. The anus is not self-lubricating. That's when, And it's not great for shower sex or any kind of water sex. Please nobody have sex in hot tubs. Those things are just nasty. Like hot tubs, no good, right? Would you see that in movies? Ooh, they had hot hot tub sex. And I'm like, with like everyone's cells in there, like no, hot tubs are gross. Um, They're just gross as it is. Um, And no shame to anyone who's done that. Just like take care of your vagina, please. So, uh, but in water-based sex, anal sex, like silicone, that's going to go the distance. If you're like, I don't want to have to reapply this, silicone. Um, And then we have the oil-based lubes which can feel really hydrating and lovely and people like enjoy those. But if you're using condoms, it's going to break those down. If you're using the standard latex condoms, pregnancy risk, STI risk. So they're out. Mm. Amazing. Amazing. There's so many things. Again, there, today we live at the time with the greatest availability of choices, mm-hmm. right? But especially when it comes to the human body, you know, there are certain things that are just kind of tried and true. And I think simplicity is important here. Mm-hmm. You know, you mentioned in coconut oil, it's like a one ingredient thing, which mm-hmm. might be a little bit better than this 10 ingredient, whatever this thing is, but also you've got to honor, you said it, and I just immediately thought that should go on a t-shirt, take care of your vagina. Yeah. <laughs> you know, whatever, it's going to be unique because mm-hmm. all of us and every woman is unique and honoring that. And so experimenting, but also erring on the side of intelligence. Mm-hmm. Right. So, so, so important. Now, this brings me to this uniqueness. You really cover this in detail as well because of our programming and the way that we are unfortunately miseducated in a sense. There's this thing about how is it, quote, supposed to look? Oh, yes. Right. And mm-hmm. you really bring, shed light on this subject, you know, and. Also, you know, you, when you mentioned your browser history, going and actually studying, like, mm-hmm. what are the stats here with the way that vaginas look mm-hmm. and the way that they're, quote, supposed to look? Yeah. So let's talk a little bit about that. Yeah. So, well, when you're saying vagina, we're talking about the vulva. So it's the exterior of, like, how are things supposed to look? What's really interesting is that, okay, so we've seen a rise in labiaplasty. And that is when basically, like, it's making the vulva look more aesthetically pleasing. To who, I don't know. I think it's maybe to yourself, but like this is something that you'll often see marketed as like, oh, men like it, you know, if it looks more like this or like you have an ugly labia. And it's it's honestly ridiculous, but, um, and I'm gonna get to why. So we see this, like there's this rise and teens were having it whose bodies weren't even developed. Um, for a while there, they were the top receivers of this. Um, and it's problematic because altering a body that hasn't finished maturing, that's problematic, but also altering an area where medicine hasn't really done this due diligence in understanding the clitoris. Like literally at the end of 2022, they finally had a study showing that, hey, there's about 10,000 nerve endings in the clitoris based on a human. Before then, it had been based on a cow. Everything was being based on a cow. This was the first time we had that information. We have surgeons out there 
cut it. And somebody's going to comment and be like, I'm a surgeon. It's perfectly safe. It makes sex better. Like ACOG is like, no, it doesn't. Like there's a lot of like authority that says no. Like this is, you know, if you need to have this procedure done because of hypertrophy of the inner labia, so um, the labia minora or what people call the inner lips, if you need it because of hypertrophy or because psychologically you are really struggling with this, that's a different story than being like, you need to look like a Barbie. And no joke, that is literally what the top procedure was called, the Barbie, who doesn't have genitals. Barbie has no genitals, but that's what women were aspiring to look like because that's the marketing. That's the marketing that was happening. Now, as all of this arose, I got really curious because doctors are always like, it's porn. Porn's the problem. Porn is why. Now, porn may be why women want to have no hair down there, but I also think like some women just don't want to have hair down there and we don't have to make it an issue of porn. Um, but for labiaplasty, I got curious. So I was like, let's go look. Let's go look. Um, as it turns out, um, Pornhub had men vote and um, they were not voting for innies, as people call it, um, where the labia minora is inside. Um, they were not just voting for innies, which is what women are told, like, that's what you should aspire to be. They were voting across the board. There was so much vulva variation. I was blown away at like, Men are into all of these different things. In fact, I don't even know if they even really care so much what it looks like as much as like what its function is. Um, so I was like, well, like, what's really the problem? After looking at, you know, this like the, how people voted and those outcomes, I go and I open up my Netter's Anatomy textbook. It's a white body. It's uniform in color. It's symmetrical. And it's an innie. Like it is all of the things that women are aspiring to be. So then I was like, well, let me get on some of these medical websites. Same. Who's the problem here? Medicine is the problem. Like we, we don't like, and it's just like what? Like in 2020, we started to get like, like bodies that were like with melanin, like present in like, like, and I, even still, it's not well represented in, across um, medical teaching. So, you know, with that, Really, when I looked at like, where, where do you Google and find this? And you find it on these medical websites and it's not accurately representing what things look like. And now there's like a whole vulvar database where you can go and look at all these different vulvas to know that all of these variations are normal. There's a lot of different ways that vulvas look like as doctors, we know that, but the information that's being put front facing, it doesn't look like that. I also talk about in the book how, you know, not only like the, you know, the size of the labia, but women being very concerned about it being darker down there or their anus being darker. And I'm like, yeah, it's full of melanocytes. They make melanin. They make pigment. It is a highly pigmented area. It's supposed to be that way. And as you age, as you have hormones, like the color variations are going to change. As you get pregnant, there's more blood flow. There's more hormones. It's going to get darker down there. But then we've got people marketing being like, bleach your butthole, bleach like your labia, like you should do that. I'm like, and you may end up with scarring and no longer having sexual function. Can we please put pleasure and function first and aesthetics, take a seat. Wow. So even having that bit of information for both men and women, melanin being more constant, it's one of the spots on the body where it's more concentrated yeah. on the reproductive organs, you know, the vulva and also for men, the penis and scrotum. And nobody's nobody's bleaching scrotums though. You know, right? That? that would be we're, crazy. We're not like, telling men. Look like, at this color cascade. Like, <laughs> but here's the thing too: it's just like if we've ever wondered, like, why is this part of my body darker than the rest of the other parts? You know, if anybody's ever thought about that or a different color, when this is like this doesn't even see the sun. Why yeah. is it so dark? Or why this melanin is the reason? Yeah, absolutely, and getting busy is the reason your body made no mistakes it's like you can find it like it's it's not going to be hard this is the area right because we're walking around with clothes and we're not on all fours anymore it's also as i talked about in the book um i had the question as i got into the breast chapter like why do we have breasts like no other mammal has breasts also not taught to me in biology um yeah as it turns out what they believe is that as we evolved we had to have, we never longer had swollen anuses. Um, now we were bipedal and we needed to have something that said, hey, I can actually, you know, reproduce. Like I'm of reproductive age. And so 
That's why we're the only mammal that retains our breasts. Personally, I'll take that over a swollen anus. Like, I'm going to call that winning. <laughs> Good job, evolution. <laughs> well, there's so many incredible insights. I think this is, again, it should be a manual at this point. And you had the audacity and passion to put this together. And I think it's just super special. And I want everybody right now to go and pre-order this book. We want to make sure this is a huge bestseller and get this into people's hands. And we can start to have these conversations because we can't teach what we don't know ourselves mm -hmm. as well. And so really becoming enlightened and empowered about our bodies and our partner's bodies. And just if, if something in our lives, if it matters to us, we need to make it a study, you know? And again, unfortunately, we're taught about so much in our reality that we don't really use. Mm -hmm. We live in these bodies 24 seven. And so to get educated about them is super important. Can you let everybody know where they can go and pre-order the book right now? Literally anywhere that they sell books, you can grab it. And even if you are sitting in the UK, Australia, a uh, bunch of countries um, are going to have this book available as well, which I'm super excited about. Um, and I can't wait to see um, how I make the UK counterparts blush with some of this. <laughs> Amazing. So share the book title. It's called, Is This Normal? Is This Normal? Judgment-free, straight talk about your body. And I just appreciate you so much. This is always so enlightening talking with you. And this is one of the, again, just a handful of books where I am just, I'm turning the page. I don't want to miss a thing. Yeah. And I'm turning the pages. I'm just like, oh my God, like, why do we not know this? And, or why, for example, why don't I know this? Yeah. Right. And so it's just super incredible. Is there anything else that you would want to share with people that they can look forward to in the book? Oh, well, I mean, we didn't even get into the 28-day program, which is mapping your hormones and your sexual life. Like there are all of these really cool exercises that come from my training in sex counseling for you to employ throughout your menstrual cycle based on where your hormones are at to get to know your body even better and really determine your hormones, uh, you know, what's your normal, how to get those balanced. And then when it comes to sex, like What's my normal? Because we've all been inundated with all these messages about like, this is what it's normal. This is what, it, you know, this is what orgasm should be like. This is what your desire should be like. And in reality, there's a normal for you. And it's just a matter of tuning in to figure that out. And that's exactly what I'm going to help people do. Wow. Incredible. Is this normal? Pick it up. Pre-order it like right now. Dr. Jolene Brighton, I appreciate you so much. Oh, I appreciate you. Thank you so much for having me. Of course. Dr. Jolene Brighton, everybody. Thank you so much for tuning into the show today. I hope you got a lot of value out of this episode. Please share this out with a friend and or family member that you think would get a lot of insight and value out of this information. Again, it's so important to make these subjects more empowering and easily accessible and stop with this taboo nature of sex and health in our bodies. Because again, this is where we live. And so being informed and empowered within our own bodies is such an important part of creating a healthier, happier culture. I appreciate you so very much for being a part of this mission and tuning in. Make sure that you're subscribed to the Model Health Show on your favorite platform. We've got some epic conversations coming your way very soon that you do not want to miss. Take care. Have an amazing day. And I'll talk with you soon. And for more after the show, make sure to head over to themodelhealthshow.com. That's where you can find all of the show notes. You can find transcriptions, videos for each episode. And if you got a comment, you can leave me a comment there as well. And please make sure to head over to iTunes and leave us a rating to let everybody know that the show is awesome. And I appreciate that so much. And take care. I promise to keep giving you more powerful, empowering, great content to help you transform your life. Thanks for tuning in.